Hey, it's Cameron here. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I'd recommend checking out Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast. Head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, and welcome to Ones and Twos FP's economics podcast. Every week we take two data points. We use them to try to explain the world. I'm Cameron Abadi, FP's deputy editor with you from Berlin, Germany. As always, Adam Twos, FP's economics columnist and Columbia University professor is with us in New York. Hi, Adam. Hi, Cam. So the second segment on the show this week will be on canned fish or tinned fish, depending, I guess, if you're in Britain. But I should say this was Adam's idea. Adam, fair to call you an aficionado of canned fish? I've really gotten back into it. Yeah, it's a childhood, early childhood thing. But um, looking for alternatives to meat, I don't, I try not to eat meat anymore. I've, I've really um, hmm. gotten back into the whole canned fish thing. And it turns out to be really hip. It's like a, it's a happening global phenomenon. That's what I discovered in looking into this. I uh, am not into the canned fish, or at least was not yet, but I associate it more with... I'm going to convert you. Yeah, I don't know. I, I associate it more with this sort of bland kind of tuna that I just remember being sort of opened and dumped onto plates in my childhood. But there's a lot out there. Anyway, we'll get to that in a second. But first, we wanted to do something from the news. And the data point there is 79.63. That is the number of rubles you would now get for a single US dollar. And that's basically exactly what you would have gotten before all the events of the last couple of months. Days after the Russian invasion of Ukraine, the ruble was at an all-time low. It shared 45% of its value against the dollar. And one month later, the ruble is back to its pre-invasion level. So just how did Russia pull that off? For starters, sanctions or not, replacing Russian gas has proven impossible. You know, before Russia's invasion of Ukraine, before the counterattacks by the Ukrainian military, before the horrific war crimes we've seen in various places in Ukraine, and of course, before the unprecedented sanctions on Russia that we, you know, we've talked about multiple times on on this podcast. You know, we've talked specifically about how these were sanctions of an unprecedented scale against a, a country of Russia's size. There were the sanctions on Russia's banks, on its central bank, on oligarchs, all of it. And by this one measure, at least, nothing happened at all. Uh, Of course, I know it's not as simple as that, but it did strike us that it's time to check in on this sanctions campaign against Russia. I mean, what has it accomplished? What hasn't it accomplished? What's going to happen next? And what has all this taught us about Russia, about war in general? even about about ourselves, maybe. So let's get to it. As I said, Adam, the ruble is worth as much now as it did before the war. But, you know, one of the explicit goals of sanction was to do damage to Russia's currency. So does this mean the sanctions have failed? You might think so, but the impression is deceptive. Um, the Russians understand that the aim of the game was to hit their currency. And, and we did that through the central bank sanctions, which were the really dramatic aspect of the new sanctions campaign over the first weekend of the war. And and so they have targeted uh, restoring the value of the currency. 
um, as a major objective. And they are completely manipulating the market for the Russian currency uh, insofar as they control it at home. Um, they uh, are restricting the way in which foreigners who've invested in Russia or anyone else for that matter can sell rubles. And on the other hand, they are creating artificial, you might say, sources of demand for the ruble because ultimately it's balanced between the demand and supply that determine the value of the currency. And so what they're doing, for instance, is requiring the Europeans increasingly through direct or indirect means to pay for Russian gas in rubles. Uh, they are requiring Russian exporters who are still able to earn foreign currency to exchange that for rubles. Up to 80% of their export earnings have to go into rubles. And every time you do that, you you create demand for the ruble. And broadly speaking, Russia is running a giant trade surplus currently, and that would be the sort of economic position from which you would expect a currency to appreciate. So they're exploiting all of these tendencies to push the currency back to where it was before. De facto, however, this doesn't mean the same thing because there's no free exchange. And if there were a free exchange, you would expect its value to fall. The, the, you know, the sort of signs we have of the black market in the ruble suggest that its its actual worth is you know, considerably less, a fraction maybe, perhaps as little as half of the price that you get for it in Moscow right now. And, and this you know, this is propaganda in a sense. This is this is psychological warfare um, on the, for the home front, maintaining morale, and that has real effects because our intention in dumping the ruble was to trigger bank panics. Right, the aim of the game was to 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 provoke chaos in the Russian financial system, and insofar as they maintain the illusion of stability, the stability is real. I mean, this is the fundamental paradox, right, about banks is that they are. They are illusory but stable so long as everyone buys into the promise um, that the money is there and could be had if you needed it. And so maintaining the veneer of stability has very real effects. Okay. Yeah, just so I understand here, they are keeping it propped up artificially in a way. And again, just to clarify, what are the costs on Russia of kind of these manipulations? I mean, what does manipulating the value of it in this way actually itself impose costs on Russia? Well, if you were in a in a regular situation, it would mean that your exports were less competitive and your imports were cheaper. And you know those mm. those are the least of Russia's worries right now. It can the things it can sell abroad, it can sell at practically any price, namely oil and gas, um, or at least at the prevailing market price, and that's surged. And what it can import is a matter really for sanctions. Yeah. So obviously there are other sanctions that remain on the table, and the big ones that come to mind are European energy sanctions. And what's become clear is that Germany seems to be the holdup here. And, you know, here in Germany, it's in the news all the time. And it's really come down in the public debate to the kind of an economic discussion about just how much damage an embargo on energy would do on Germany. You know, independent economists have said from an overall macroeconomic perspective, the damage would be manageable. But now the German government has been saying over and over that it would be catastrophic. There would be mass unemployment, entire branches of industries collapsing. The German chancellor, Olaf Scholz, has even, you know, taken economists to task for the audacity of using mathematical models. I think that's a quote, if I recall, to discuss the impact on Germany's economy. So, I mean, how to make sense of this? Is this just a kind of bullying from the German government on economists or are the two sides talking past each other? Is this about the difference between the impact on the economy as a whole versus the impact on certain industries that, I don't know, may just have the German government's ear? How to make sense of this, Adam? 
Yeah, I mean, if it wasn't such a serious issue and so morally serious, it, it, you know, one would simply say it's fascinating, this debate, um, because, of course, economists have to use models. I mean, that's what they do. Um, and there are, of course, issues with the models because models always have a purpose, right? They're not just simply descriptions of the world. There's no such thing. They're, they're always, as it were, designed to answer certain questions. And the two basic sets of models that are being used in this debate um, are both, neither of them really have a way of capturing what's going on because we don't actually build models to describe the moment at which you turn the gas tap off. And so they're pressing into service. On the one hand, a model which is designed to measure the so-called gains from trade. In other words, what would a world with more or less globalization look like and what are the efficiency benefits of having more globalization? And then they use that model, which is generally designed to test, as it were, the gains from trade to say, well, if you lost a certain element of trade, how much would you lose? And in practice, it, it resulted in ludicrously small estimates of the likely costs. So they tweaked the model a little bit and came up with a number of like a loss of GDP of about 3%, which is significant, but not as bad as COVID. And on the other side, in the other camp, you have a bunch of economists associated with the German trade union movement. And the model they're pressing into service is a regular business cycle model. So what it does is to describe and to try and predict how the economy waxes and wanes, uh, speeds up and slows down over, over the business cycle. It yields the outcome that says, well, it would do damage to the German economy up to about 6% of GDP in the case of a huge you know, surge in gas prices, which will be tantamount to sort of ending the gas supply immediately. Um, 6% of GDP is worse than COVID, and it's really a very dramatic shock to the German economy, you'd have to say. But um, what worries the politicians, of course, and what worries people who are responsible for actually maintaining ordinary life in the German economy is you're not really, not, not really so much as it were, whether it's 3% or 6% of GDP, but, but whether people will have jobs to go to. And that's, I think, the position that somebody that the Chancellor's coming from and many of his advisors is that we simply don't know what happens to the German economy if we take a major part of its energy supply away. And, and this is the incommensurability. It truly is. And it's, it's, a, it's, it's incredibly difficult to resolve. There is, however, no credible economic model which tells you it will be a catastrophe. That talk is exaggerated talk. Uh, there are very good reasons to think it would be a big blow, say, for the German chemicals industry and associated branches. They make up 3% of German GDP. So assume that you then had a huge knock-on effect um, in the rest of the associated industries. That would get you to about 6%. That's probably the kind of measure. And a 6% GDP fall is, you know, it's worse than 2008. It's worse than 2014 in Germany. It would be very big. And it would be a hugely consequential decision to take on the basis of a foreign policy commitment, right? Not to your own domestic population, as in the case of COVID, but as a result of a foreign policy decision. And that's why they're hesitating over it. Got it. Okay, that was clarifying. But while we're talking about Germany, another point here, because, you know, the German government is also making this claim over and over that Germany's payments for Russian energy are not fueling the war effort because they say the Russian government does not have access to the payments as a result of, I guess, the central bank sanctions. But I haven't seen that point made anywhere else. So I just got to ask, I mean, is Berlin bending the truth here maybe a little bit also for public consumption? I do find this a little self-serving. I mean, the, I mean, it is true that the Russian central bank is sanctioned, but it's also true that the Gazprom bank was not sanctioned. Hmm. And so that's how the gas is being paid for. 
Um, and it's being paid for at an astonishing rate. I mean, it's figures up to a billion dollars a day appear to be flowing towards Russia. And that money flows into the Russian financial system uh, around the central bank to a degree and uh, helps support uh, the Russian financial system in its moment. And because it gets flipped into rubles, it helps to support the currency in particular. What is true, however, is that whether the Russians have the funds or not, currently they're not able to buy the tech components they would want to support their war efforts. So there's a separate set of sanctions directed towards precisely this issue of preventing Russia from supporting its war effort. After all, I mean, Russia's economic ship is not so tight that, you know, they buy bits for the war when they get the money from their oil and gas revenues. That's never the case, right? These are two separate things. And the revenue is still going to the Russians for the gas. The reason why the Russians can't buy semiconductors is that Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Corporation won't deliver them anymore. And the reason why they can't continue domestic production is that Micron, Russia's own leading semiconductor manufacturer, is also being sanctioned. So we are in a situation, and you know, Matt Klein, my, my friend and fellow, fellow substacker and, and blogger, um, pointed out you know, that, that, that we're in a kind of perverse situation in which Russia runs a huge trade surplus. It gives us its oil and gas. We pay them in greenbacks or euros. They can't use. And that, in a sense, is the absurdity of a country running a gigantic trade surplus. They give us their good stuff. We give them paper claims. And right now, we're denying them the right to exercise the purchasing power that would go with those paper claims. It's very difficult to see that situation sustaining for any prolonged period of time, because either they'll stop delivering the gas which may be what the German political class is angling for, because it would be a lot easier to deal with if the Russians turned it off than if they decided to do without it. Or in due course, we are going to allow the Russians to spend this accumulated dollars and euros. And at that point, they will, of course, derive an immediate benefit from the purchasing power they've piled up during this period. Okay, yeah. It sounds like you're being charitable here in sort of interpreting this line, which gets used over and over. It is interesting in the German debate how people can sort of hide behind some of the technicalities here in making some of these arguments and or governments can because it's hard to follow and they're genuinely obscure like yeah it's not altogether obvious how the money goes right now and that's for good reason there are people who don't have a particularly you know have no yeah. interest in making it clear how the money yeah. flows so so they may be hiding they may simply be confused um yeah and um but it's a self-serving argument there's no doubt like if you wanted mm. to if you wanted to do the russian economy and putin's regime harm you would stop buying the stuff and you're not doing it because you consider the damage to the german economy so grievous that it doesn't make sense as a political calculation. Got it. So generally, we have talked a lot about whether sanctions are severe enough. That is where the debate is here in Germany, certainly, and, and elsewhere. But in terms of using them as a tool of policy, Adam, do you think the West needs to be talking more about how and under what conditions sanctions might be lifted? Has the West maybe even backed itself into a corner here? I mean, you know, that they've rendered sanctions unusable as bargaining chips specifically? I think people really worry about this in the US context. I was on a call recently with folks from the Quincy Institute who were making this point that, you know, once, you know, once Congress gets its teeth into sanctions, it just doesn't let go of them. Um, there's going to be a reality check when it comes to Russia and notably the central bank side of this, right? It's, it's very difficult to contemplate a world, to understand how a world would work in which you can take the best part of 500 billion dollars worth of legitimately acquired claims on dollars and euros out of circulation. I mean, that's 
that would be a staggering thing. So I would think that that would be very close to the top of the agenda, the unfreezing of Russia's central bank assets. It, you know, if it doesn't happen, it will be truly monumental in its consequences. Um, and the other thing to say is that, you know, for all of the killing, for, for the, all of the egregious breaches of international law and the horror that we're seeing, we are still buying their gas. So, you know, before we start talking about unwinding sanctions, let's just recognize the fact that the most important, elementally important, you know, commodity flow that matters most has just not been interrupted so far, which just goes to show, I think, how how indeed, I mean, people are aware of the, the problem of like, it's not just backing yourself into a corner, but like, you know, burning bridges or whatever, whatever metaphor is more appropriate there. Like, we haven't done that yet. Hmm, hmm. Um, when we do, I think, uh, you know, the stakes really go up. A final question. It does seem like the sanctions effects on Russia are still unclear and whether we're going to go all the way with energy sanctions are still unclear. But I don't know, that raises the question of what the purpose of the sanctions then is if we're not sure about what the effects will be. And and I don't know, do you think maybe it's a symbolic exercise here for the sake of the sanctioners? I mean, you know, maybe the sanctions are just existing to keep the sanctioners united in a way. Is that a coherent way to think about this as a sanctions as a vehicle for maintaining the unity of the West by, you know, identifying and uh, marking out a common enemy? Am I just sort of being too abstract in thinking about this? No, I think that's absolutely crucial because if you go the other route and say, what are they for in an instrumental sense, you rapidly ran into mm. a, a brick wall. It's like it's not obvious from that point of mm. view. So I agree. I think um, acting together, that, that's one dimension of this, being sh- seeing to act together. The other is credibility. I mean, we said we were going to do this. And so now we have to do it. Um and why did we say we had to, we were going to do it? Because think about the alternatives. Well, the alternatives are either to resort to military action, or to do or to do nothing, and and both of those seem incredibly unattractive. So you do you promise to do um, economic sanctions, and then it's crucial to actually do it. And then exactly as you say, it's, it's crucial to be seen to be doing it together. Hmm. Uh, and I think there's another element to this, which is as it were, there's almost a populist element to the sanctions. I mean, I was. I'm haunted by that, you know, kind of, you know, cheer that that rang through the, the to the rafters of Congress in the State of the Union when you know Biden says we're going to go after the oligarchs, we're going to go after their yachts, we're going to go after their villas. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a there's a real kind of vindictive pleasure in you know looting the assets of other people's rich people. Yeah. Um, I saw today, uh, I saw an incredible thing on Twitter that's like, the climate case for seizing oligarchs' yachts. (laughs) It's like, you know, no doubt taking some of the Russian yachts out of circulation, like, contributes to reducing leisure CO2 emissions. I mean, you could then ask, of course, about the private jets and maybe the private space exploration of of oligarchs in the West. But... um, you, you take my point that there is indeed a kind of um, closing of the ranks in the West around this issue, which doesn't reduce and isn't explicable entirely in terms of effects we aim to achieve, either in uh, you know changing Moscow's mind or, frankly, materially aiding the Ukrainians, hmm. uh, for whom many of these sanctions measures come far too late. Yeah, there's. It sounds like a kind of like Wizard of Oz aspect here, where we're like the sanctions behind the curtain. Maybe it's all just yeah, self-justifying. It's a kind of vertigo-inducing thought. But I guess we do have to leave it there. We will be back in a second to talk about fish, though. So stick around.
This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. So there's something I've been meaning to get off my chest, and it has to do with uh, Little League. My son is on a uh, Little League baseball team here in Berlin, and the coach is... He's great. He's extremely devoted to the games, the practices. He also expects a lot of devotion from the parents, and I often end up feeling like I'm dropping the ball, uh, you know, not literally, but, you know, figuratively in terms of getting my son to practice on time, making sure he's prepared for practices, etc. And uh, I've been called out a few times. No, I've been more than a few times. Uh, pretty regularly, I am called out by this coach in, 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 in the form of text messages uh, admonishing me. And I've been meaning to tell the coach that, you know, life is busy and I can't always uh, hold up my end of the bargain and, 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 and it would be helpful if he would not be so pushy about everything. But I do not say that yet. Instead, I carry it around in my chest and this becomes a stressor. Uh, maybe you all have stressors of your own kind that you're carrying around, big or small. What we all should know is that if we keep these stressors bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively in all sorts of ways. And that is where therapy comes in. Therapy can be a safe space to get things off your chest. You can figure out uh, how to work through whatever it is that's weighing you down. And that's just skimming the surface of what therapy can do. And it isn't just for those who have experienced major trauma. It's for everyone, whether you have a baseball coach in your life you've been meaning to talk to, or another loved one. If you are thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It is entirely online. It is designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Visit betterhelp.com slash ones twos today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash ones twos. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Welcome back. As promised, we will be talking about canned fish. And the data point here is 10. That's 10%. That's the share of all fish that is consumed in canned form. That's a lot more than I would have thought. As I said at the very top of the show, uh, when I think of canned fish, I think of tuna cans, tuna salad, kind of unappetizing stuff that was in my house as a kid, almost kind of cat food consistency. But I gather that tinned fish can be a real delicacy, at least the high-end stuff. So maybe just a place to start would be, are there specific fish that really lend themselves to canning more than others, Adam? I mean, enlighten me. Yeah, and there really are. And the tragedy is that tuna isn't one of them. Mm. And, um, and yet uh, tuna um, became overwhelmingly the, uh, the most commonly eaten uh, tinned fish in the United States. And I, I'm actually just mapping this onto your biography, Cam. I think you're probably the kind of turning point generation that were tortured with low-grade tinned uh, tuna mm. on salads and, you know, just dumped onto things, you know, mixed in with melted cheese and horrendous things like this. And, and there has been a dramatic decline as a result of um, tuna consumption and indeed tinned fish for consumption in the United States over the last 10 years. So you are entirely typical of your generation. It wasn't, it wasn't until 1900 that anyone figured out how to tin tuna because it's it's in its natural form, it's it's quite a tricky fish to deal with. It's it's oily, it's pungent. 
they it has to be quite heavily processed to be the you know chicken of the sea uh, bland thing that then became so famous in the 20th century the original tinned fish were believe it or not um oysters were very early on so baltimore oysters were shipped into the midwest already in the early 19th century in cans and then sardines um Sardines are just a kind of generic description for small um, silver fish, you know, a couple of inches long. And they are generally um, fried um, or baked before being canned. Um, and um, those are really the kind of classic uh, fish to can. And then salmon from the 1860s onwards, the great salmon ranges of the, the Pacific Northwest uh, and uh, America begin to be tapped for um, global consumption in the form of um, canned salmon. Okay, so help me understand canning. I mean, where did this canning of fish start in the first place? Is the canning of fish better understood as a culinary innovation, or is it really more a way of preserving food for long periods of time? It's it's absolutely preservation, and it's preservation and geopolitics, actually. It's extraordinary, extraordinary. So the, after the French Revolution, uh, one of the problems the French had is that their navy was quite powerful, but it lacked long-range bases to operate from because of the disasters of the French Empire in the 18th century. And so their seamen were subsisting on very reduced diets. And the French Revolutionary re regime in the 1790s offered a prize for somebody who could develop a technique for preservation that would allow them to feed their, their naval crews. And in response to this, uh, a Frenchman by the name of Nicolas Appert um, develops uh, a, well, it's really a bottling technique, but it, he was using glass containers, but it was uh, essentially, uh, you know, airtight uh, preservation of, of meat and fish. Um, he won this prize, 12,000 francs at the time, you know, a, a big a big deal. Uh, the, the technology was rapidly pirated by by expat French who were in, in England at the time. Um, and it's in the 1820s that another um, Frenchman, uh, Pierre-Antoine Angilbert, develops a tin container that's less subject to leakage. And it's from there on in, really, that you get the development of the modern canning business from the 1820s onwards. Um with these technologies, and it was it was definitional for, you know, for life in in early twentieth century, mid twentieth century Europe. I mean, I I have this thing because you know, being the son of a working class, a man who grew up working class in in Britain in the in the thirties, forties, fifties, you know, my dad's taste buds were shaped by corned beef, sardines, tin codra, That's the kind of this is comfort food in in was comfort food in my household. Some of my earliest memories of eating. Um, uh, mashed tin sardines uh, with vinegar on toast, uh, you know, at the hands of my paternal grandfather. Um, so it, it becomes a, a key staple of the working class diet because you can get very high protein food. I mean, this is the great thing about tin fish. They're, they're power food, um, incredibly high um, protein content um, and great uh, fatty acids and stuff like that. And infinitely lived, you know, I mean, practically infinitely lived. There's an entire... There's an entire subculture of very aged tinned sardines, like you know, um, that you, that you keep. And of course, the fish does slowly change inside the tin, ah, um, even if it's airtight. So wait, there's no expiration date on the can. You can just oh, there is, there is, but you, you can you can stretch it and you can you know, and some of them are deliberately aged. Huh. Okay, that sounds like a kind of niche of YouTube. I should 
check out. But I said at the top, the data point was 10%. That, that is a pretty vast share of all fish being consumed in this way. What can you tell us about where the consumption of canned fish is, is concentrated? Is it really sort of just one, one part of the world here? It's pretty generic, actually. The, the Chinese and Asians eat plenty of uh, canned food. Um, the market is big. Um, you know, it's in the sort of $30 billion range. Um, it's a substantial slice of the food supply. I mean, America's just not a great vantage point to see it from because, I mean, Americans, as a result of having had their taste buds ruined by, and their taste ruined by all of this ghastly tuna, um, they only consume about 3.5 pounds of canned uh, seafood a year. And the Spanish eat three times that. Uh, more like 10 pounds. It's a staple of tapas. And in Portugal, it's even more extraordinary. If you go to the airport in Lisbon, you know, instead of like um, caviar stands or, you know, fancy perfume stands, there are entire stores devoted to tin fish. I mean, like, arrayed in these beautiful arrays of color, like the rainbow. Mm. And uh, I mean, really amazing selection. So the the great, you know, Atlantic facing fishing cultures have always valued the sustainable quality of, of fish that you can, you can keep this way. This really is a remarkable blind spot in my, in my view of the world. Uh, next time not... we get together, I'm gonna, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna have, have some good stuff. <laughs> I guess this is the part of that I guess I'm still wondering about. You're saying that it tastes... This is not, a, this is not driven by sentimentality for you. You're talking partly about your childhood, but it, you're saying it actually tastes good. This is, like, this is something you would eat. Oh, yeah. All, or at least there's a distinction here. There's like really good high-end stuff that you would choose over even you know fresh fish. Well, it's very different. I mean, it's it's a very strong flavor. If you, you know, you have sardines or mackerel. There, mm. it's um, it's like a very strong flavored fish. It, it's like ma- I mean, if you have mackerel um, cooked in, on a grill, it has that. It has that meaty. You know, meaty in a sense. It's almost like the difference between you know chicken and liver or something like that. It has that intensity of flavor that's that some people really really enjoy. It can be deliciously, meltingly smooth. Um, so a bit more like lox, you know, like smoked salmon. It, it can can take on those velvety textures too. And then the Spanish and the Portuguese are masters of combining these with chili peppers or olive oil. Um, so there is an entire, you know, supplemental, as it were, culture of of marinating the fish, mm. um, which makes it particularly delicious. But you know, at one end of this are like the super high end um, anchovies, right? Of of the Mediterranean sphere, which is so crucial in Italian cooking, um, and so no, no, it's a, it's a, it's absolutely a taste. It's a taste thing, and it's quite uh, <laughs> seriously. I have like a regular order. It's addictive. <laughs> I'll take you up on it. You bring yours. I'll bring my tuna, uh, and we'll uh, we'll we'll, uh, we'll exchange. But okay, we talked about consumption. Now I have to ask about production. Where is the production of this canning mostly happening? And is that dictated by the places where these types of fish that lend themselves to canning are available, or is it driven primarily by low costs of the labor? I mean, where is the production right now? It used to be all over. All the big fisheries would have would have canning going on immediately because you know costs of refrigeration were high. So the quicker you could do it, the better. And the, probably the most famous is um, you know Cannery Row, um, you know made immortal by John Steinbeck in his in his novella. Um, that's in Monterey, California, and it was a, a row of you know low-end uh, canneries. The last one of those closed in '73. Um, nowadays, it's a global industry, and the, by far and away, the largest center of, of canning is in Thailand, and then Ecuador and the Philippines. And of course, what they've all got in common is they they face the they face the Pacific. Um, 
and that's that's where the great fisheries of the world still are. The, the, the Atlantic is to a considerable extent fished out. Um, but it's that complex. So many of the Pacific Island nations have rather large tuna canning complexes on them. And, and they're owned and operated by the big, you know, uh, the big global um, companies whose horrible um, tuna you would have been raised on. Hmm. You mentioned this overfishing in the Atlantic. How should we understand that? Is that a problem driven by economics? It, you know, is it a kind of tragedy of the commons type of issue where you know individual fishermen are just don't have an incentive to coordinate with one another? Or is this more driven by politics? Is this countries that are sort of trying to grab more market share for their respective industries and kind of encouraging this kind of aggressive fishing? I mean, which of these is it or is that a combination? It's it's a succession of both, really. The, the first big fisheries were fished out to a very considerable extent already in the early 20th century. There's a marked drop-off in the big cod fisheries of the North Atlantic. Um, and that was driven largely just by unregulated um, uh, private enterprise. And then what we see from the middle of the 20th century onwards are these very long-range highly sophisticated, radar-driven um, fishing fleets with cooling, integrated cooling facilities so that they can stay at sea for months and just eat their way through entire you know, populations of fish, which they can identify with sonar and, and hunt down. Um, the most tragic arena for that right now is probably off the coast of West Africa, where you have a clutch of very feeble states with very bad governance and high levels of corruption. And on the other hand, you have the might of the Chinese long-range fishing fleet, which is utterly ruthless, um, unscrupulous, takes everything in the catch so they don't spare you know, younger fish that are still maturing. And um, they are backed by um, billions of dollars in subsidy. So overall, you know, Perversely, we we subsidize the global fishing industry to the tune of about $35 billion globally. And of that, a fifth is Chinese subsidy. They have this huge distant water fishing fleet with over 2,600 vessels, very poorly regulated. They go dark, they turn all their beacons off so they can't be tracked. And uh, they're doing absolutely devastating damage to some of these vulnerable fisheries, which are crucial for the local economies where you have you know, poor local communities with relatively low tech and cannot possibly compete with the might of these of um, these fisheries. But of course, ultimately, what drives all of that, and this is the guilty element of consuming um, this fish and this delicacy, is it's, it's consumer demand. So there is an imperative there to be serious and asking about the sustainability of, of fishing. And not for nothing, Portugal is one of the centres for thinking about, you know, sustainable fishing globally and corporate interest there are very deeply interested in it because that's the key issue going forward. We can't continue to enjoy this if it's if it's not um, managed in a sustainable fashion because otherwise it's like just plundering a wild resource, right? We, these, are, these are the fish which end up being canned are overwhelmingly not farmed. Um, they are overwhelmingly wild caught. That was my question, yeah why not have more farms is that possible or is it just not sort of doable to can farmed fish oh it's the future absolutely the more the more fish farming we do um the better right because anything else is 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 uh, what the germans would call raubbau right you're you're basically just exploiting natural resources um hunting down wild animals um 
And that's an utterly unsustainable practice, especially uh, certainly at scale. So yes, we do we do need to go to massive levels of fish farming that they themselves, of course, generate huge ecological issues because of the concentration of animals and the 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 concentrations of feed that you put into the water. So a whole series of other issues follow from that. In general, there's no question that we need to move to a diet much much heavily based on on plants ultimately that avoids both meat, fish, and dairy, the whole the, all the trifecta. But um, but in the meantime, if you want to enjoy these things, yes, it's really worth looking for sustainably caught um, fish. Yeah, well, I can't pat myself on the back because even though I don't eat canned fish, I'm not even a, a vegetarian. So something to think about. But in the meantime, I will uh, uh, take you up on your offer to try some of the high-end stuff at some point. And yeah, otherwise we will leave it there for now. Okay, that's it for another episode of Ones and Twos. Thanks, as always, to my co-host, Adam Twos. Listeners, as always, we like hearing your feedback. Please email us at podcasts at foreignpolicy.com or tweet us at Ones and Twos Pod. Remember, that's Twos as in Adam's name, T-O-O-Z-E. And, of course, uh, remember to follow and review us uh, on your favorite podcast app. Ones and Twos is written and edited by me, Cameron Abadi, along with Adam Twos. It's produced by Laura Rosprow-Tellum and Rob Sachs. Our social media manager is Claudia Tatey. The executive editor of FP Podcast is Dan Efron. Thank you very much for listening, and we will see you back in your feed next week. Hi, I'm Annalise Riles, professor of law at Northwestern University. I'm also an anthropologist and the host of a new podcast, Everyday Ambassador, where we give you the small tools that make big change. The idea for this show has been a long time in the making. I actually remember the exact day I started thinking about it. It was March 11th, 2011. I was in Japan conducting research on the financial markets of Tokyo. All of a sudden, I heard a loud rumbling sound and the room started shaking. Everything came crashing off the shelves. I looked out the window and I could see the skyscrapers swaying so much that they looked like they would touch. And then the sirens started going off. A tsunami was on the way. These were the harbingers of one of Japan's worst ever disasters, the meltdown of the Fukushima nuclear power plant. The Japanese government now says two reactors are in partial meltdown and four more are at risk. The meltdown completely turned Japan on its head. I saw hundreds of stunned office workers covered in dust walking down empty train tracks to get from the city to their homes in the suburbs. Electricity was out, internet, cell phones. Supplies flew off the shelves of stores. Geiger counters became an in-demand item, which is never a good thing. Living through a crisis of this magnitude was an inflection point for me. To prevent the next Fukushima or any of the other crises we face today, we'll have to work much more effectively across silos of expertise and national boundaries. And we'll need to harness the wisdom of everyone, from local fishers to nuclear physicists, on how the world really works and what happens when things go awry. Using this approach, 
I've gone on to spur countless innovations in global policy. And that's what this podcast is all about. Everyday Ambassador peels back the curtains of high-stakes leadership and gives everyone backstage access to the most powerful methods of diplomacy. In each episode, we'll break things down into deceptively simple moves that everyone can make to help build a more peaceful and sustainable world. Like giving a gift. You want to make it tasteful. You want to make it thoughtful. You thought about the other individual. You thought about what their likes and dislikes are. Or creating a fiction. Taking on a fictional scenario and a role outside of the one that you occupy in your day-to-day life allows you to think through what you would like to have done differently. Or just taking the time to have fun. Trying to see this as more so building long-term relationships that are going to be helpful uh, down the line when negotiations are a bit harder, as all negotiations are. Each week, you'll hear surprising stories which reveal the moves you can make to change the status quo, to find ways to connect and move things forward. So join me and become an everyday ambassador coming to you this spring on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. 